You're listening to Moving On With Pain, the podcast. My name is Dr. Morden Hoy, and I'm your host. This podcast is presented by the Danish Society for Pain and Physical Therapy, a not-for-profit organization that is focusing on providing access to high-quality pain-related content for our members and everyone else with a clinical interest in pain and science. So welcome, everyone. I am Morten and your host again on this podcast. Today with me uh, is Professor Stephen George from the United States. And uh, given that we are all a bit contained during uh, the COVID, uh, maybe I should start asking you, Stephen, where are you physically based at the moment as we speak? Yeah, that's a good question. I am physically based in Hillsboro, North Carolina, which is uh, a small town about eight or nine miles outside of Durham, which is where Duke University is. So this has been my uh, home base, my home office since March. Um, And uh, we have, you know, we have been strongly discouraged (laughs) to uh, be working on campus for good reason. So I've been largely been uh, working from home and in August was very grateful to go in and get my monitors that my dual monitors set up. Um, so they, you know, they allowed us to sign up and get some things from our office. So I grabbed my docking station and my dual monitors and that that's made life, um, a little, a little more, uh, efficient, I guess, you know, than just working on my laptop. Cause in the States it kind of happened haphazardly. We were, you know, we were kind of expecting to go back in a week or so. And then that week became a month and, you know, I think we're going to be solid 18 month stretch where they're not going to want us in in the office so um so i'm I'm in hillsboro though um which is just outside of durham and and we we're perhaps jumping ourselves a bit here because uh i i believe pretty much everyone who's listening to this podcast will will know you because you are sort of the the grand old man of anything pain and physical therapy or physiotherapy (laughs) as we say in the united states but i would love to to sort of build up the context um, regarding your background. So do you mind maybe giving us a tour from whenever you want to start and, and whatever decisions you made in your life to to actually uh, you sure. know, get us to where we are today? Yeah, thanks. And, and thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for inviting me. It's nice to be the grand old man in, in something. Um, there may be some people who would uh, dispute that, but um, I'll, I'll take it this morning. So I think, you know, Really, my interest in in physical therapy started uh, in high school. Uh, unlike a lot of people, I was not injured. I did not experience it directly, but I, I did see my my dad go through it. And he was an engineer, and my mom was a nurse. And it was, you know, in my mind, a, a little bit of both, you know, and talking to them and seeing what they did vocationally. So that was an an interest of mine. So, you know, I went to university uh, for that. At that time in the States, uh, we were training for in a bachelor's program. So it was two years of regular university and then two years of physio training. And then I was able to sit for a license. And without asking you too many intricate questions, what, what year are we? When did you graduate? I graduated from high school in 1990, so um, I would have graduated from university with a PT uh, degree and able to sit for my license in 94. And you went straight into practicing physiotherapy after that? or I did, yeah. I graduated from West Virginia University. Um, I moved about 60 miles up the road to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 
which has a very strong, um, you know, medical community and rehab rehabilitation community. But I did start working clinically. Um, I think that's really important. Actually, I, you know, all of my research questions uh, really were driven by by clinical experiences and, and clinical questions. I actually worked in a hospital for two years and I yeah, did rotations through uh, they had a post-surgical ward with a total joint replacement. I, I worked with neuro, you know, neurological patients, post-stroke, post-spinal cord injury, both acutely and in rehab. So I had a nice, you know, full two-year experience, which, um, you know, and I think that's more common internationally, like in talking to colleagues, I think, you know, that broader um, base experience seems to be more, at least the people that I've met with internationally, I think sometimes in the states, people you know push to to specialize right away. So um, you know, I, I do think that's that was an important part because you know, as we know, fast forward twenty years, and you know, the nervous system actually becomes really important. But at that time, you know, the training certainly was keeping you know the muscle and the tissue and the joint separate from the nervous system. It was almost as if they didn't they weren't in the same body sometimes. Um, so I think that broad base of, of early clinical training when your mind is wide open, um, you know, was really important. And one of the few things I can give myself credit for is I did consciously seek out a, a broader experience early because there were opportunities. In fact, every other job offer I had, it was a well-defined track. You know, you'll be doing this and in year three, you'll be a specialist, you know, or, or you'll be doing this. And in year four, you'll be a specialist. And that wasn't of huge interest to me at the time. And and this was all work within musculoskeletal physical therapy, or was it also in neurology? And no, I, you know, I, I was on, you know, I saw um, stroke, I saw spinal cord injury, um, amputation. We we actually in Pittsburgh had a fair number of sickle cell. Um, you know, it was it was a pretty broad uh, wound care. It was it was a pretty broad experience, um, and intentionally so. They you were you were supposed to spend two or three months in one setting, and then rotate around for two years, and then you were supposed to pick you know kind of where you would want to spend more more time after those two years. And after those two years, I I um, was able to, you know, focus a little bit more on the musculoskeletal um, patients. It, it's also important to note during that time, um, the University of Pittsburgh had a, a master's program that was available in the evening. Um, and I wasn't married at the time, so I didn't have much better things to do. So, you know, I started taking some some classes in the evening. They were free um, and it turned out, you know, they were they were really good classes. These were classes that were being taught by um, Richard Earhart, who um, was a, you know, a very well-known chiropractor, PT, uh, who, who did a lot of manual tra- therapy training, manual skills training in the States. Um, Tony Delito, you know, taught one of the classes. So I, I started to get exposed to some people that had more of a research interest and, was that how you sort of slowly transitioned into having a more academic interest or what happened there? Definitely. Yeah. You know, it was it was it was not willingly because I, you know, I didn't really have those goals early on. But after completing my master's, I actually I went back to the clinic because I said I didn't I don't you know, I don't really want an academic career, um, but I, I was happy to collaborate with these people. 
Um, and then after a couple of years of that, I actually, I bumped into Julie Fritz, who ended up being, you know, my, my PhD mentor. She and I had worked clinically. We had played on the hospital softball team together. Um, and I, you know, I had some questions for her and, and she was really the first one that posed to me, you know, you're, you're not going to find the answer to all these questions in the literature. You might have to figure some of this out yourself. And I remember that being like that really had never been posed to me. I, I had never thought that maybe, you know, that that the literature wouldn't be able to answer some of the things I'm interested in. So once that yeah, seed the, was the things that interest the clinician, I guess they're so so easy to understand. They're so so intuitive. And and you almost expect that the reason you don't know them is because you study enough. But the fact is, I guess today as well, that there is a lot of things that seems so intuitively normal or necessary for clinicians that are not out there yeah i think you know i agree i think clinically the it's not the curiosity um it's it's the discipline though and the training to answer those questions you know with the proper rigor um that's what i needed and and i think that's very common when i talk to clinicians it's not a shortage of ideas but it's the willingness to to parse those ideas and say, you know, this is the one I can answer at a high enough quality that someone is going to care about my answer. And that's, you know, I think that's a struggle sometimes. That's the tug between the clinical mind that can come up with 50 questions in a day and the research mind that knows, you know, I may only be able to answer one of those in the next six months. Coming back to Julie Fritz, so she's been quite famous for her prediction models, uh, which, of course, you have also played a role in. And right. that type of clinical research is, is more looking at how we do the clinic and then applying the, the research rules sort of on top of it. But in your research, you've also gone the extra mile and actually tried to implicate and, and understand some of the basic mechanisms, including such, you know, uh, condition pain modulation and and going to a more mechanistic level of, of understanding how, for instance, manual therapy works. Right. Why is that? What, what made you decide to go that way? And, and how are you inspired to do that? Yeah, so um, it's a really good question. And it, it basically that, you know, so I'm, I'm finishing up in Pittsburgh. I've been, um, I've been on the sidelines or I've been involved in some really, we didn't know it at the time, but some really important projects that were really going to, you know, make an impression on the profession. I was, when I was a PhD student there, um, John Childs was there, Greg Hicks was there, um, Sarah Pivo was there, uh, Rob Wehner kind of kicked us off and they were all, like you said, they were all doing um, clinical prediction studies. Some were doing development derivation studies. John was doing a validation study um, and, and that was in the air and we had some incredible peers you know, those are those are all people who are, um, you know, very well known, and we're all we we're all in the same place at the same time. So those are the people, you know, you're having a beer with at the pub um, or at the bar in the states, and and uh, you know, we're we're talking about these things. So I got to see, you know, I got to see these um, ideas formed, and and we were trying to carve some things out, and and because of my interests, um, you know, Julie kind of set me forward on um, looking at the psychosocial uh, part. And, and as luck would have it, 
they happen to include the fear avoidance belief questionnaire in a data set that they had and, and no one had really looked at it. So part of my job was to, you know, work with her to figure out whether this this kind of crazy questionnaire that asked about people's fears and beliefs, whether it was and it ended up being, you know, we also had red flags, we had all kinds of things, and it ended up being one of the stronger predictors of return to work. This was a data set where people were, um, it was in an occupational setting. So as I, I designed an intervention for that for my dissertation, and as I was finishing that up, you know, I was kind of thinking, what is the next step? And I think part of it was, part of my interest in the direction you mentioned was out of necessity, because I was around mm -hmm. all these people, and they had the skill set. And I, you know, I thought, well, part of it, you know, I, I probably need to learn, I don't want to be competing with these people all the time. And, and you know, I know, I know um, there are more things to look at. So I, I, I went to the University of Florida for an interview and I met some psychologists who ran quantitative sensory testing labs, um, Mike, mm. Mike Robinson and Roger Fillingham. Mm. And I had, a, I had a really good conversation with Mike. And I remember having the epiphany of, as a physio, I had spent my whole life trying to understand pain by reducing it. They were trying to understand pain by causing it. And I thought that's a whole hell of a lot easier. You know, yeah, let's just, I think let's just pause it there for a second, because I think this is quite hilarious as well. We when we do basic research, so when we do pain provocation tests in the clinic, we do that to sort of identify the dysfunction structure cause of the pain. We try to identify what the patient experiences or objectify it at least. And in the clinic, we use that same stimulus, that nociceptive stimulus, to induce pain and to understand what goes on. Um, can you explain the rationality behind that in, in a way that people who are listening to this podcast can see why that is rational? I remember when I started to have an interest in basic research, I, I struggled seeing why inducing nociception that leads to pain could have any interest for people in the clinic because they had pain but not necessarily no deception. How would you explain that if that was a question I posed on you? Well, I think there's there's a couple of ways. Yeah, I mean, first of all, it, it it's it's like you said, it's almost the exact opposite in some ways. You know, it's the converse. Mathematically, you you know, there's there's some advantage to knowing the converse of things. Um, I love the fact that you can control the, the nociception. In clinically, I never, ever, ever applied a standard stimulus. We pretend we do. You know, we pretend we're palpating the same way or in the same location. But nobody does it in the same way that you can with quantitative sensory testing, where I am applying, you know, we use heat, we use thermal stimuli a lot. I'm applying this thermal stimulus, you know, to your volar forearm. We have it marked. I can control it within 0.1 degrees Celsius. I can control how long you're experiencing it. You know, I can, and, and that level of control to me was, like you said, it's it's the exact opposite of what we do clinically because we we don't have control over the nociception. I can't control that dosage. Um, I think I do. And, and that part, I think, was also helped me realize that maybe that was a part where professionally we were fooling ourselves because we thought we were had control. We thought the provocation was you know control but really it was just it was inducing variability and instead of that sometimes helping our clinical decision making it was stirring it up 
And until I saw um, and others, you know, have, have seen this when I give a, when you give us, I spent two years in a basement in Florida is what I tell people. I spent two years in a basement in Florida um, applying standard stimuli. And I saw the whole range of responses. And the one thing I was sure of was the stimuli was the same. And if that didn't convince me about the variability of what was going on clinically, you know, nothing would have. So I've often thought, you know, we could skip a lot of what we learn in PT and you probably don't need two years in a basement. You probably could learn because most people are smarter than me. You could probably learn this in three months, two or three months in a basement. And, and that would be, you know, such a good education on nociception and pain. You know, I didn't need anyone to tell me that nociception and pain were different. Like, I didn't have to read that. I experienced it. You know, I, I saw it and I saw it for cold, heat, <clears throat> excuse me, pressure, you know, electricity. We use delayed onset muscle soreness. Mm -hmm. I saw it across a whole range of things. I think the yeah, other thing it does, you know, mm -hmm. besides the standard stimulus, and, and this is where it leads to the manual therapy story, is it got me thinking you know, about some of the mechanism, because not knowing the mechanism for the mechanism is that's, that to me is kind of the pure basic scientist approach, science for science. But because of that influence at Pitt, you know, so what, what might these mechanisms look, what might that tell us about how people respond to manual therapy? And I remember, you know, transverse friction massage was very popular in the early nineties. And I used to use it a lot. And it was frustrating because I would try to do everything the same. You know, you go parallel to the fibers, you do, you know, you time it. And, you know, some people would come back and they would love it. It was the best thing in the world. Some people would come back and they would never want you to touch them again. And it wasn't until, you know, six, seven years later when we're doing these conditioned pain modulation trials, I was like, well, I think transverse friction massage is just a trial of their endogenous, you know, pain modulation. I don't think it has, you know, I'm probably doing something biomechanically, but I think the bigger reason people love it or hate it is for some people, it triggers a robust endogenous response. And they're like, this is great for other people. Their endogenous, you know, response either had already been taxed or it wasn't as robust. And they're like, you're, you know, you're hurting me, but I, you know, the, the intervention itself was probably much, I applied that in a much better standard fashion than the response I saw. Biomechanically, I had no explanation for that. You know, there's no way to explain that biomechanically. No, and, and I think, again, one of the things that most uh, clinicians wouldn't be aware of is that we have absolutely no clue how energy is transformed from, so pressure, for instance, how that's transformed into action potentials that transduction method is simply unknown so far. So there's a lot of stuff in this that we don't know. And I think it's quite interesting. But would it, would it be fair to say that you sort of started out with this clinical um, curiosity and then that, that brought you on to a more academic approach where you had this the basement story where you, where you were learning the basics of applying a stimulus and understanding that there is actually such a huge variation in how the patient responds and that, I, I sort of almost hear that you're saying that triggered on some of what you have gone on to develop further on. But how, how did yeah. how did it go from the basement? What happened well, there? From, well, I think from the basement, you know, what I learned is the, you know, the, um, I guess the, 
the power and the limitations of quantitative sensory testing. But what we really were interested in is now moving these into clinical populations because a lot of the testing in quantity, you know, is done on healthy subjects and, and we learned on healthy subjects, but what we really wanted to do um, is move those into clinical populations. And now we can test pain sensitivity with someone who has, we also know their pain related fear. Now we can see, you know, do these things act in concert or do, are these testing the same thing? You know, there's some people make the assumption that someone who's fearful also has a high amount of pain sensitivity. You know, what we have seen and others have seen is, yeah, those are correlated, but they're not the same thing. You know, they're, they're not, you don't need to just measure one of those. Each of those actually can add to your decision-making. So you, and I think clinically that's what you see sometimes is, oh, that person has high fear. So they think everything else is a wash, right? That means they're also going to be very pain sensitive and they're going to have, you know, um, low tolerance of things. And, and that's not, that's not what we see. We see, again, we see wide variations and there, there are times when that variation goes in the same direction and, and that's when it becomes a clearer signal. But there's also times, you know, when you get conflicting information. And I think that's, you know, but the clinicians should rejoice in that a little bit because that's where the decision making really matters. You know, when everything lines up, there's really not much clinical decision-making people like that because it confirms, you know, that's convergent people like, but, but really where clinical decision-making matters is where there's divergent information. You know, that's where your judgment and things really matter. I have so many questions now. Let me just stick to my, my original plan, which was now to ask you what happened. So your PhD, what, what was that on? What was sort of the topic of your PhD? Just brought so the, um, Yeah, so the PhD was on, um, we developed uh, an intervention for people with high fear. We did graded exercise um, and in PT. So we trained some physios to do graded exercise and we compared it to a, a usual care. Um, we, you know, we, um, there had been some work already done on this. We, we certainly didn't, weren't the first um, to do this. Uh, I think the, the biggest thing we did is we did it in a randomized trial. There weren't, there weren't uh, many trials at that time. And we, we did test a priori whether the people with high fear benefited more than the low fear and that was something um actually that's still a debate you know in the literature is whether whether you yeah. see differential effects or you know whether it's an effective intervention for everyone yeah. so we did that yeah. in a relatively small you know i think it was 66 patients um published it in spine um and it was you know at that time you know getting when i as a clinician you know i used to love reading spine to have now, you know, you can see the circle being completed. That's Julie telling me, well, you may have to create some of this. And then to have, you know, my, my work published in Spine where, you know, that's where Chris Main and Gordon Waddle and um, Kim Burton, you know, that, that's where all the people had their stuff published. And, um, you know, I thought that that was a good, <laughs> that was as good as outcome as, as any, yeah. as far as I was concerned. Um, so that, you know, that was the, the no, yeah, yeah, no. So, um, so that was the PhD completion, and and that led me to start thinking, um, you know, what the next steps were, and 
that's how I got into the the quantitative sensory testing. But you know, you're right. The clinical questions that that led to that were, when I reflect, it really was about you know how do I handle this variability that I'm seeing that my training didn't prepare me for. Yeah. Um, you know, how do I how do I um, explain the person with a frozen shoulder, you know, adhesive capsulitis, who doesn't get better with rigorous shoulder mobilization? How do I explain that compared to the person who I've just seen one time, they were super guarded about their shoulder, and I told them, you know, your treatment is going to be movement. And then they come back a week later and they say, look, at, look what I'm doing, you know, and, 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 you know, biomechanically, wait a second, I thought you needed four weeks of specific, you know, we were going to figure out which capsule walls were tight and we were going to stretch those specifically. And I just gave you the freedom to move it and you came back and you're doing better than this person, you know, that I've been working on for six weeks. And, you know, I have my goniometer out and I'm measuring and, and, you know, the biomechanical paradigm doesn't, doesn't handle that well but then you know working around psychologists and 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 just being able to start integrating all that and and you know that's that's where you start seeing oh you know we were trained to keep those on separate parts of the field but really it all comes you know it all comes together so i guess that that interest also was sparked as you say working uh, interdisciplinary with the psychologist but but also i assume with with other professions Yes. And and your work from there, how did how did that how did your life work out from there? Because there's a today there's a lot of people doing PhDs and and it doesn't always lead them somewhere. There's a lot of people today when they've done their PhD, they sort of don't know where to go. Um, right. How how did you go from there? Did you well, go think, the postdoc way or? Yeah. So the postdoc was what I did in Florida with the quantitative sensory testing. So I did. Um, with with Mike Robinson, um, I did a um, you know it ended up being about an eighteen month postdoc. Um, I had some interest at staying at the University of Florida at the time, so that's where I took my first faculty position. You know, I think we're we're lucky in the states. There's still a pretty strong market for phys- physical therapy physio faculty. So um, you know, if you have an academic interest. Um, there is a market. What is what's a little bit harder is is plugging into the environments that are research intensive. Um, luckily, you know, I, I most of the time when you go and do a postdoc, by definition, you're going to be in a research intensive environment. But I was lucky enough to be able to stay in that research intensive environment. You know, started working with the collaborators that you know I've all published with now. Um, you know, started attracting my own. PhD students. So I think, you know, part of it is what, what, what's the market allow? And part of it is, you know, your decision and, 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 and one decision. No, sorry. You know, one, you yeah. Just to finish the thought, one decision I made that I see physical therapists struggle with is that this meant I was going to take a break from patient care and I was going to make, you know, my living a, in a different way than I thought, you know, when I started all this. And, and that, when I talk to people that are thinking about research as a career at any stage, whether, you know, they're thinking about their PhD or they've completed that PhD, for some people, that's that's a hard break, you know, t- to make. Mm. Yeah, and, and I guess as long as you're 
a student, you, you're still sort of in a role and people are taking care of you if you've got the funding and everything. But but there is, uh, for many people, a vacuum afterwards where, where it's, right. it's difficult to know which way to go. But Well, and you have to commit. You know, that's what I told myself is I, for five years, I was going to make an attempt to support my own work. And, and in five years, I would know the answer. I didn't know what the answer was, but I gave myself a time limit. And I think, you know, some people are hesitant to dive in like that. And did you go straight from Florida back to North Carolina? Yeah, I was in Florida for 15 years. So 2002 yeah. to 2016, you know, and, and Florida is and was a great place to do pain research. I mean, we, you know, we we worked with Mike and Roger consistently. We worked with Don Price. He was very gracious with his time. Um, you know, he has since passed away unfortunately but be to be able to work with someone like uh, don who was you know when when you talk about me you know um there, there's so many people that don't even know who the hell i am that are you know have been doing work in pain and to, don was one of them you know and to be able to pull him in on a phd thesis for a physio i mean for me uh, i felt like we were robbing the bank but to be able to expose other physical therapists to the way he thought about pain and the challenges. And he, you know, our most cited paper, um, you know, if you believe in those metrics, is that uh, the, the manual therapy model paper. And okay. that paper, that paper was simply trying to get, I, I, it's trying to get a physical therapist, a psychologist, and a neuroscientist to understand manual therapy. That's all that paper was. And Joel Bialowski was the PhD student who his job for his dissertation was to try to figure out how to get, you know, a psychologist, a neuroscience and a physical therapist to understand what's going on with manual therapy. Cause you know, Joel would come in and he'd try to explain in our profession's terms and, you know, the neuroscientists and psychologists, they're like, I don't know what, you know, grade three, grade four, I don't know any of this stuff. You know, what do you think is really going on here? Um, so putting that together ended up being, you know, this manual therapy model. And, and Joel was aware, well aware of Joel Picard's work, which was a really nice model, but it kind of ended with a reflexive response to manual therapy. And we were much more interested in kind of what happens above and beyond the dorsal horn. You know, we, we, we thought the dorsal horn was important, but we also knew, you know, the, ner the way the nervous system is, it's all connected. So you can't do something in isolation in one part. And that's where, you know, Joel was able to map on some of the expectations and the pain centers. FMRI was actually also just starting to really become a useful tool. And we knew some people who were doing FMRI studies. So we were able to work that into a manual therapy model. Um, yeah. And we published that paper thinking, you know, no one is, this was useful to us. And we spent so much time on it. It's like, you better submit it. <laughs> you know, we spend so much time on it. And four revisions later, it gets accepted. And then next thing you know, people, but there was definitely, there was a timing element of that one. People were ready to read that one. You know, you publish that five years too early and people will think, you know, you're too far. It would be too early. And five years later, everybody would say, of course, of course we know this. You know, so it, it really was the timing element. I, I guess speaking of timing and, and talking to you, 
we just need to say psychologically informed physiotherapy or practice, don't we? Right. Uh, where where did that where did that sort of start to develop? That I'm I may I you tell me, but I I I attribute you as a sort of uh, leading figure in, in that whole way of looking at physiotherapy. Um, I think. And, and, I mean, it has a pretty clear beginning, um, the term, I think what's harder is, is carving out, you know, when, when did it really begin? But the term started, uh, when I, I finally got to meet Chris Main, you know, I'd been reading his stuff in spine. We both were on the editorial board, um, for the physical therapy journal for the American physical therapy journal. And, um, the editor in chief Beck Craig said, you know, you guys should do a special issue together. On back and that pain. was along with the sections meeting or something, wasn't it? In yeah. 2004, I, was it 2004, perhaps? It may have been a little bit later than that. But yes, it was at a combined section meeting. So, you know, Chris and I put our heads together. He knew a lot of the European authors. I knew some of the American authors. And we built a model where um, every paper in that special issue is written by a physio and a psychologist. So every every paper except for one has representation from a physical therapy uh, author and a psychologist author. And we had them, you know, tackle various, various topics. Uh, Along the way, we were running into the problem of, well, is a CBT, you know, what exactly, what is this? So, you know, Chris, Chris and I had a brainstorm and we were, you know, jotting down different terms. And in one of them, I think, you know, he ended up jotting it down, but we were, you know, we were just kind of anything that was coming. One of them and that kind of stuck really well was the psychologically informed practice or psychologically informed physical therapy because it moved it a little bit away from it being, you know, is this CBT or not? Mm-hmm. Um, certainly there's elements of CBT in it, but once you once you label something as CBT, there's a big question of, you know, who should be providing that, um, who pays for it, and you know how is it being delivered and a lot of what we found is you know um, cbt is meant to be delivered at a you know with high fidelity often it's you know it's a programmatic type of approach often it's delivered in models where where physical therapists you know it, it wouldn't be the type of model that we would you know deliver our care we wouldn't see someone you know once a week have an hour a session with them and not touch them or not do anything else with them. So, so the psychologically informed we thought was a good kind of way of saying we're taking elements of CBT, but it still should be recognizable, you know, as, as physical therapy, there's still going to be the touching of the patient. You know, there's still going to be the use of manual therapy skills. There's still going to be exercise prescription. There's still going to be things done in, in vivo, you know, in the clinic, um, that, you know, CBT, a lot of it is, it, it really is go and do this and then report back to me. And obviously there's elements of that that are really important. And I see that sort of really nice linear progression from your own clinical experience and that discussion about the whole quantitative sensory testing and, and modeling and then 
keeping that variability in mind and understanding that the, the person behind all this pain is also quite important and looking at the, the avoidance beliefs and then just coming out with this uh, co-work with, with Chris Main and, and Steve Linton was quite uh, much on it as well, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, he was. I mean, if you want to know, you know, anything about psychological, the, Steve and Bill Shaw wrote, you know, an, an awesome review. And that was one of the papers that I mentioned. Those were two psychologists. And, and, you know, it's like 10 years old now, but it's still it's it's such a good read on, you know, if you want to know how psychological influences are on the pain experience, tell people, you know, this is the one, Steve, you know, Steve Linton and Bill Shaw. It's a great starting point. It's got a ton of references that if you really want to deep dive, but it's, you know, if you're wondering, um, you know, where do I start? This, this is the starting point right here. And I, I remember the papers that were at a point as well when I was I was feeling quite confident that uh, there was so much more to manual therapy and to physiotherapy in general um, but I think it was probably the the articles there that really took it in my mind anyways from from the sort of broader pain world into the physio world and introduced this whole idea about it doesn't have to be a psychology per se or or cognitive behavioral therapy per se, but the way we are dealing with our patients is still informed by some of the methods that they use in psychology. And and of course they are, but we, we weren't used to thinking that. We were thinking right. that we were treating tissues, for instance. But yeah. if, if you were to give a sort of updated short explanation to a listener, uh, and, and the question was, what, what, what do you think today is what encapsulates, or how do you describe psychologically informed practice today with your with your knowledge and and that afterwards uh, you know contemplation and experience that you have yeah i think you know i think of obviously the you know one part is assessment you know you have to be measuring something whether it's the start back tool you know we we have a tool that we um a yellow flag tool that we like to use linton you know there's the orb or the there's but measure something. So you have to be aware of, of what the level of pain associated distress is. Um, after you measure it, though, you, you, it's almost you have to be a little zen about it. You can't obsess over it. Like it, it, you have to be aware of that, because I also see some when we train some people, you know, that doesn't then become the tissue that you're treating all of a sudden. Right. It doesn't become the only. So you have to have an awareness of it. But you can't you can't. Um, you know, you're not a bulldog holding on to that and, and chasing the patient around saying, why are you catastrophizing? You shouldn't be, you know, so you have to have, you know, is this person elevated? And that's what I think is nice about, I know there's some issues measurement wise with classifying people into high, medium, low, but I think the start back tool has it right in thinking of that as risk. Like, you know, there's people with elevated, there's people in the middle, and then there's people with lower. And, and yes, we can get more precise than that. But if that's how you're thinking about it in your brain, that's probably a good way. The second yeah. part then is you need to like tailor your treatment accordingly. And that's where like you don't need to over or underreact, you know, but the, the treatment should look different. If I were a blinded observer, if you brought me in, you know, the treatment should look different for that person based on what their measurement was. It maybe you know, maybe for the person that has higher distress, I would see more talking 
I would see more demonstration. I would see more reassurance, but it would, they would still be doing things. You know, we're, we're not suggesting that it becomes entirely a talk session, but you might need to see more eye contact. You might need to see more um, nonverbal ways of showing that, you know, you're there for that person in that session. So um, do, you, do you think if we went back in a time capsule and, and looked at the, the, what, what could be, you know, considered to be the, the, the good clinicians back in the 1990s, perhaps, but we came with that knowledge that we now have. And rather than looking at, for instance, the, how they apply the technique, we look at how they apply their person to the patient. Do you think, so my question, I guess, is if, if we have the knowledge that we have today, but we look back on a good clinical practice or a good clinical session 30, 40 years ago, do you think we have changed a lot or have we just changed the way we look at things so that now we are much more aware of how we talk, where we right. probably the good clinicians did it intuitively 40 years ago, but they didn't know that that was what they were doing. Do you understand my question? I, no, I understand it completely because I think this is the other, you know, this boils down to, so we, you know, we, we sometimes do a full day of psychologically informed practice. Everybody's jazzed about it. And there's usually one person who comes up and says, this is great. All I have to do is be nice to people. And, you know, and that is so deflating because you're, you know, you're like, oh, I just wasted my life. Um, but, but I think that is the root of the question. So if we go back in time behaviorally, I think, yeah, the good clinicians do that. But I would be shocked if we had the audio, if what they're talking about, though, was that person's like responses or their beliefs about pain. I think what the clinicians knew intuitively back there is, you know, oh, we'll talk about the weather, your favorite sports team. That will be, you know, that's one part of building that alliance. But I think for it to be psychologically informed, you fast forward and maybe we're seeing the same behavior, like you said, of, of the good clinician. But I sure hope they're talking about different topics if they're doing the psychologically informed. And, you know, when we trained when we trained people for the target trial, um, we worked with a psychologist out of Hopkins, Stephen Wegener, who's done a lot of, you know, a lot of psycho. And he would, he had such a great way of addressing this with physical therapists. And he would tell them, you know, do you think talking about the weather is the best use of your skill? You know, it, yes, it will get you so far, but he said, there are a lot of people that will, that are less expensive than you <laughs> that this person can talk to so if you think you have a specialized skill and you want to charge for it you know you want to bill then some of your interactions have to be directed towards you know especially for people that we think have you know maybe stronger emotional responses and and we want to help them but it you know it, it's something that has to be done iteratively and you know you do have to build alliance so yeah talk about the weather talk about your sports team but make sure make sure you're using that as a bridge to say, you know, so you remember that questionnaire we had you fill out about your beliefs, you know, how are you feeling? We've had a couple of sessions now, you know, you're experiencing more pain. What, what, how are you interpreting that? Or, or do you feel like, I'm yep. oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I think from reading some of your work, you, 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 you're almost, you know, you're almost just mentioning a corner of it because what you always what I think you're always uh, also em emphasizing is the fact that we need to be much better at 
at involving the patient and and uh, so you you use the term self uh, management or self efficacy but I'm, I'm thinking of it more like in terms of agency so supporting the patient to to develop agency over their pain definitely and I think that's what you also are alluding to isn't it that that from back then when we were building the alliance and we had some some influence with that good clinician had that then we are doing that still but we're probably even more focused today on on supporting the patient in managing their own condition do you agree or how do you think about yeah no that? i agree you know i think the other now that you've mentioned that you know the other big difference between then and now is back then pain still meant they were unhealed you know they so they needed more treatment um and now you know when they're experiencing pain you know you I am always amazed because I've been doing this for years. When someone comes in and tells you they're in more pain, the number of physios who will back off on that and, and, you know, but I, we have told people in our training, it's actually empowering sometimes to say, well, good, you, you know, you did more, you should be in more pain. Um, you know, but you, you, did it affect your function? You know, can you see this is still progress? And that's, you know, when you can get the person to say, I'm in more pain, but that doesn't mean, you know, I'm damaging myself, I'm injuring tissue um, and focusing on the fact that the reason they're in more pain is they did more. You know, we doubled your reps. You should yeah. you should be in a little, you know, if I ran twice as much, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be sore. Um, so we, you know, we do use a lot of analogies to try to help people understand that. So I do think that is a difference that in the past they're probably that some of that interaction would not have been um, as activating to the patient. It would have been, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll I'll talk to your doctor. We'll get three more weeks. Yeah. Um, and, and now, and, and as you said, back then pain itself made sense. Whereas today we try to, to make sense of the pain. Right. Um, th there wasn't so many options back then as, as I recall it, but I, 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 I so in terms of time, we need to wrap up, but I, I really want to bring this on to sort of the, the later editions. And uh, there are two things. I'm going to try and merge them into one question now. Um, <laughs> the one thing is the, the article you authored or, or lead authored uh, in pain just recently on basically my take on that artic article is that you are you're saying that we know a lot of stuff, which is not doing it. So we need to be better at applying it, both uh, from a, a provider perspective, from a from a healthcare professions perspective, and from a personal perspective. And I'm going to combine that with my other question, which is, how are you doing that in your in your current position as professor at Duke? Yeah, and I think you know those two are related, uh, and and part of it is the 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 drift that has occurred in research wise in my career is, is being more active in pragmatic trials. And the difference between pragmatic trial and a traditional clinical trial is, you know, in a pragmatic trial, you're actually trying to do the trial in a real world setting. So, you know, we are training clinicians at the site to deliver it as opposed to in a traditional trial, we would, um, you know, provide the research staff, they would do the trial, interventions and then they disappear. So there's no sustainability. Um, so in, in learning about and, and now, you know, starting to do pragmatic trials, you realize how um, how much of an influence this, the, the health system that people are operating in 
um, influences the, the behaviors. And so what we have started moving towards is instead of saying, you know, this is the magic treatment for back pain and we're going to compare it to another treatment that we think is less magical, is really working with people to craft pathways. Um, and these pathways have a start and an end and their characteristics are, you know, they're designed to be guideline adherent. They're designed to be, um, you know, at least at least have an awareness of the evidence base. And, and once you start getting into how pathways really operate, you know, we know this really well in back pain, but it's similar in others is, you know, they weren't designed based on the evidence. They're designed on what we think is a medical flow, which starts with diagnosis. And guess what? You know, diagnosis is great for a lot of conditions, but it's not great for musculoskeletal, you know? And so here, you know, right away, we're starting them off on the wrong foot. So it's an attempt. And you I mentioned think, this in the article, but do you, do you want to say just briefly, how do you think we should go about it? In, so rather than diagnosing and then looking for the pathology, how is it that you propose we should do it? Well, I think, you know, you flip it. it it's, it's, it's the opposite of how medicine should be. It's, you know, you want to, I think, I want to expose someone to um, a non-pharmacologic treatment as soon as possible. If they have back pain, you know, and they go to the emergency department, they should have a, you know, and the emergency physician still has to do his or her due diligence. You know, this isn't an aortic aneurysm. This isn't metastatic. So here's your door. You know, we're going to shut you out this door and you have to walk past an acupuncturist, a massage therapist, a chiropractor and a physio before you leave. And if you don't find your way into one of those doors, you know, then it's more on you. You know, that's where the patients have to have some. But I, you know, if we designed it so that and I'm joking, but you can imagine if, if everyone with neck and back pain that went to an ED in the States, um, I don't know what it is in other countries, but I imagine it's similar enough um, in Western um, you know, if they had to walk past four non-pharmacologic providers, we're going to catch most of them and they're going to have that early exposure to the non-pharmacologic. Is that going to cure everyone? No, but at least they've started that, you know, and then for the people that are continuing to have pain, you know, maybe now they need to be evaluated more medically. Um, let's offer them some pharmacologic options that uh, make sense that aren't addicting. Um, or if they do need you know, uh, narcotics make it a shorter course or that it's medically indicated for longer term. You know, we don't want to completely get rid of that. But instead of that being the first thing, you know, maybe that should be the second thing. And then the final thing is, you know, you, you get to see a specialist. We're, we're way too good at that emergency room visit means you go straight to the specialist. And because they're reliant on diagnostic imaging, we know what the false positive rate in the you know, the specialist should see the people that are having a lot of problems and have failed treatment a lot. They shouldn't see them right away. So, you know, I think that's that's kind of what, yeah. you know, how we're drifting in our in our work. Yeah, and in the article, you sort of also mentioned that it's that the trajectory you are proposing is is more like intertwining or using the best of step care and stratified care rather than using one or the other. 
And I think that right. mirrors very much what is also recently published by Jonathan Hill and colleagues in mm-hmm. in Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. So that's that of sports physiotherapy. That seems really to be the 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 way we should do it from a lot of perspectives. And uh, I guess yeah, I mean it's kind of eerie. I saw um, uh, uh, Jonathan was on the one in pain reports too. There's a you know a a, a model. Of, I think their paper in pain reports is about you know, whether NEOA and back pain should be managed. Oh, it was pain way. reports, right. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Well, there may have been one in JSPT too, but, you know, the pain reports one was the one that caught my eye because it came out around the same time. And clearly, you know, we're thinking along the same lines. So, um, you know, it was kind of cool to see that. And interestingly, guess which two articles we're doing for our journal club later today. <laughs> so. Well, let me just put one more thing in. I was actually discussing this with uh, Jonathan um, last week on Friday. We had a symposium. And one of the things that still is sort of unaccounted for in the whole idea, you mentioned this fact that we shouldn't be treating catastrophizing as the new tissue. but how do we find out what is actually modifiable? So I guess the old uh, the old discussion would be trait or state. So what is right. the person carrying with them, considering or comparing to what is it that they have in this current condition? But what maybe we should be discussing, rather than subgroups and whatever we've been doing before, is what what is it that we can now observe and measure that is actually modifiable? Uh, do you have any any final thoughts on that? Well, I, I do think, you know, pain associated distress is modifiable. And, you know, if you measure something in the beginning and you do something in between, you know, and, and maybe the, what you're doing in between is a combination. Um, generally, you should see less pain associated distress. And some of the analyses that we've done, you know, that is actually a precursor to people improving functionally. So I think, you know, one of the things, because we this came up a lot when we were training physios in the States about, well, what is the right dosage of psychologically informed physical therapy? And, you know, talk about a wonderful question that I can't answer, um, you know, but what we kind of backed into is, well, the right dosage is the dosage that you see a measurable change in their distress. If someone comes in and they're distressed and you do something and they stay at the same level of distress, you're not helping them. You know, if someone is really anxious and you do something and you you explain pain or whatever you want to do and you give them some simple exercises and they come back and two weeks later when you reassess them, they're still distressed, then that wasn't an adequate dose. So, you know, I think that is one of the key indicators we recommend for people that are doing psychologically informed care. Because when we look at patterns, the person that comes in elevated and stays elevated they have the worst outcomes. There are groups of people that come in elevated and then they drop, you know, pretty quickly. And those people actually have pretty good outcomes, but it's the people that kind of stay stressed during a care episode. And I think, you know, that's a little different way of thinking of dosing because it's a post hoc way of explaining dosing, which, you know, people wouldn't like, but because it's so complex I don't know any other choice but to go back to the reductionist way, which is, you know, when you do, you know, what is the effect of this treatment versus this treatment, it doesn't put it into motion like we tend to see clinically. So, you know, I hesitate a little bit. I understand what the weaknesses are, but I think, you know, so we encourage people to measure, you know, what is a key physical indicator 
a key psychosocial indicator and, you know, pain. And if you have all three of those going in the same direction, then you have, there's no decision-making, right? I'm back to what I was saying. But what is really interesting is when you start seeing those patterns, you know, what do you do? Like I, we tell therapists, if you see someone who's not improving in their pain and not improving in their function, but you're seeing decreased distress, you're actually on the right path. You just need to give that person a little bit more, a little bit more time. Um, and that gives them, you know, some other tools to help reinforce they're on the right, they're on the right path. So that's kind of my long winded way of, of saying, you know, I think you need to measure things repeatedly. We have a wonderful control of that patient. You know, that patient is their own control. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's a great way to use, you know, to use that information. You can have all the literature you want in your head that guides you, but you have this wonderful opportunity, you know, to measure this person repeatedly. Yeah. And if you do it wisely and you do it, you know, systematically, I, I, I think it, it supports the decision making. Yeah. Um, I think that's a wonderful way to end this discussion. I have uh, tons of more questions I would love to to go into sure. with you. Maybe we can do a sequel. Wait the pops open again. And yeah. uh, perhaps I'll see you at a conference. In uh, yeah, I assume definitely. you'll be in Amsterdam this summer if if everything goes well. If allowed, yeah. I mean, that's going to be a really interesting question. Right now, like our university is not supporting any international travel. So, mm. um, you know, if, if they don't, um, support that travel. It will be very difficult. Both we had, we signed a compact, you know, so basically saying, you know, we wouldn't travel beyond um, personal travel um, unless it was absolutely indicated. So if, if that compact is still in effect and June is going to be right, you know, right on the line, but you know, I, yeah. I certainly hope because that's one of my favorite conferences in the whole, you know, whole wide world is the, um, the world Congress. Yeah, the IS World Conference. Yeah. Well, um, talk about multidisciplinary. Oh, sorry. What was that? I said talk about multidisciplinary. I mean, that is one of the few conferences where you can bump into many different, you know, professions, and I enjoy that um, a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. <laughs> I thank you so much for your time. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Is there anything you want to add or? mention anything maybe if you, if you have any materials or any any resources online that people can go and and be inspired through no you know we we have a um if you're if you're interested in kind of what our group is we have a um uh at duke msk you know twitter handle and and we we tend to use it for papers and presentations and and you know a few um congratulations so if you're interested in seeing kind of what is coming out of our group um you know, we're doing some more health services research. Um, we're studying our health system a lot more, as you can tell from that paper. Um, but, you know, I actually one of my PhD students is finishing up um, some interesting analyses on subgrouping and back pain where she incorporated motor measures and sensory and psychological measures and did some clustering. And, you know, fingers crossed, you'll see those in some journals that you recognize. But if you, you know, if you want to kind of, I try to tweet those out, you know, early enough. Um, but that's it. But I, I really thank you for reaching out and giving me the opportunity is the main thing I would like to conclude with. It was great meeting you this way and would sure love to talk to you some more in a more traditional manner. But, you know, if we're still doing this and you need, you know, you need uh, need me to come back, um, we can certainly talk about that because it was great conversation.
Wonderful. Thank you so much. And I'll definitely yeah. catch up with you when I see you or reach out if not, if I can't wait yes. for that. Yeah, yeah. Thank Take you care. So much. And thank you. You too. Bye.